Welcome to Central Assembly of God's podcast. We pray this message speaks to you. So I just want you to ask yourself a question. What does the word good mean? For the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about God being good. So we actually have to figure out, like, what does that word good mean? Does that, does that word good mean that it's a certain number of qualities that you have, like to pass a test, to get the job, to make the team he was good enough? Does it mean it's pleasing to look at, it's pleasing to touch, or something that's pleasing to eat? It's good. Does it mean to have positive intentions, even though you still do bad things at times? When you think about that word good, and you hear people saying the word God is good, they might say it because they made the team. They might say it because they got a raise. They might say it because they got out of work early, right? God blessed them with an answer to prayer. God is good. But if you think about it, we can actually throw that phrase around like just a little catchphrase, a little Christian slogan, right? We could say things out of our mouth. Oh, yeah, God is good. God is good. God is good. But like, are we actually walking in that revelation? Are we actually walking with a constant awareness that he is good? What I want to look at over these next few weeks is actually that term. What does it mean when we say God is good? What does the Bible mean when the Bible says and when God himself says he is good? See, in Bible studies sometimes and in small groups sometimes, we'll look at a passage of Scripture or we'll look at a word like redemption or sanctification or whatever, and the facilitator will say, what do you think this verse means to you? What do you think this word means to you? Now, that's good for discovery and for Bible study. The problem is there is that we leave ourselves being the final authority on what it actually means. And I believe that a lot of Christians are leaving themselves as the final authority of what it means that God is good. So we are going to look at all kinds of different scriptures from all over the Bible throughout these next several weeks to see what heart God has encapsulated and captured through the authors of God's word to actually prove, not just to our heads, but to our souls, that God is good. If you look at Psalm 34, verse 8, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I want you to understand something. What this is, is not just looking at the fruit like we talked about even last week. It's not just looking at this meal that's in front of us, but it's actually tasting of that meal. So I've talked about before, I believe it is a necessity for us to encounter God in greater ways for us to experience the presence of God. But an experience without theology is bad. It's wrong. It's error, right? To walk in a constant, just an experience of God, but to have no biblical background, no theology of it. Now, where we also walk in error is to have all this theology and no experience. Where we walk around and say, well, yes, my Bible says God is good. God is good. God is good. How are you doing today? I'm blessed. God is good. But to have no experience with the goodness of God, then we could say, see that God is good. I don't, want, I don't want half of that verse in my life. I don't want to say, oh, and see that the Lord is good. No, I want to say, taste and see. I have tasted and I have seen that the Lord is good. So my hope and my prayer is that this isn't going to just be a teaching that you've written down a few scriptures, but every single week there's an opportunity here on Sunday and then throughout your week to actually experience the goodness of God in your life. 
Now, how many of you know when you experience the goodness of God, it doesn't mean that everything in your life is going to turn out good all the time, right? It doesn't mean that every, every bad thing that's happening in your life is going to go away. That just means that the goodness of God is going to be in you as you're going through that, working it out for your good. There's a big difference. So you say, well, I experienced the goodness of God, and I asked for the goodness of God, but this problem didn't go away. Oh, in this life, you will have troubles. But take hold of it. I've overcome the world. Jesus said that. So we're not looking for all the stuff to go away. We're looking to actually encounter and experience his goodness. And for several months, I've felt it in my heart that for our church to have a grace-filled, kingdom-minded, revival-driven, presence-based, supernatural-dependent move of God, we have to understand and experience his goodness first. And then we can say, listen, I can admit that God is a good God and yet still fear him. I can know that he's a good God in everything that he is, but that he's still holy and he's still just and he's still our righteous judge. His goodness does not come into conflict with any of his other attributes. In fact, within his goodness encapsulate everything else that he is. And that's what we want to talk about. There's a book that will be on sale in just a few weeks called God is Good. It was written uh, by Bill Johnson. I've learned a lot from him. I'm, gonna, I'm using the, some, of, some of the chapters and the topics and the concepts that are found in that and then some personal revelation that the Lord has showed me probably over the last 10 years or so about his goodness uh, to, to really just craft these next several messages. And I do believe that a series like this is timely, even with uh, our guest that's coming in the beginning of March, Dan Moeller, who has an anointing for the goodness of God, our identity in Christ, the grace of God, walking in power. I believe the Lord has this all threaded together for a reason of why we're learning about this today. So what I want to do is I want to move past just saying God is good, and I want us to actually have a constant awareness of his goodness. And I actually believe that it's going to change your life. Of actually walking in his goodness will change your life. The frame that we put God in and the frame that we look at him with is going to dictate how we read the Bible, how we pray, how we minister, how we interact with other people, how we respond to problems. Is that not true? So if you're walking around with a God who is angry with you when you mess up, a God that looks to punish you when you're not doing well, then that's going to affect your prayer life. That's going to affect how you treat other people. It's going to affect how you minister. It will absolutely affect how you look at God's word. In fact, some of you cannot get past the phrase, God is good, because you see all this stuff that happened in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that in the upcoming weeks. We see, man, God was like really mad throughout the entire Old Testament. How can he be good? Hopefully, I'm going to show you in his word how he is still good. A.W. Tozer says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, think about that. When you think about God, what enters your mind at that time will come into your soul, will dig that root system that was spoken today, and it will affect everything about your life. What I think is this, is some people misrepresent Jesus because they say they're following him, but they're actually only believing in a few of his teachings. If we actually follow Jesus in his way of life, we would be manifesting and demonstrating God's love everywhere we went. We would be demonstrating his goodness everywhere we went. 
But what happens is this. We as believers go to unbelievers that are in the midst of tragedy, and we say this. God has probably caused this to happen. You may have heard this before, right? That he caused the sickness, that he caused an accident, that he caused something to break down in your house as if this was all part of his higher plan to show us something, to teach us a lesson. As some of us have graduated from, well, God caused it to happen all the way to, well, he didn't cause it to happen, but he allowed it to happen. So you might believe, well, God wasn't the one that hit the disease or the destruction or the discouragement button, but he was right next to Satan giving him a, a thumbs up. The root of this belief system is this. If God created this all and God is in every single detail of our lives, then nothing bad could possibly happen without God saying, giving you know, the devil a pat on his back and saying, go ahead, I allow that to happen. And we see a verse in Psalm 115, verse 16, that I continue to, to try to grasp in my mindset the trust that God has in us. And the verse says this, the heavens belong to the Lord, but he has given the earth to all humanity. So if you wait a minute and you just think about this, maybe God, who has complete authority, who is completely sovereign, who is the creator of all, actually doesn't allow or permit or cause any bad things to happen. Maybe he's waiting for us his ambassadors, to step up to the plate and take responsibility of what's happening on this earth as he has given us the right to demonstrate his kingdom to mankind. And now I know that I will offend people by saying that. Well, who are we? We're nothing. That's what I mean. I can't believe he trusts us enough to do this. But the Bible says in this one verse, and read the, the, the entire psalm, though he is the creator of everything, Though he is sovereign over everything, though he could step in at any time and eradicate evil and end it all the moment he comes back, he has chosen to use people like you and me who choose to love him, who choose to worship him, and who choose to serve him to defeat the devil in the name of Jesus. So instead of saying, well, God had to be behind this tragedy somewhere, maybe God is waiting for someone to intercede. Maybe God is waiting for someone to step up in faith, saying, I want to release my glory upon this earth. And he's come into partnership with us. So though his sovereignty is up to him, he can do anything he wants, anytime he wants. But he's also given us responsibility. We okay so far? What I want to do is I want to establish this. God is a good father. Before we can see that God is a good God, I want to establish a simple premise, the priority that God is a good father. So we have to admit before we begin that if we look at earthly fathers, we fail at times, right? Right? I have two of my sons here. They could say, amen. Amen, daddy. <laughs> we don't live by the standard of ourselves. We live by the standard of him being a good father. So we see his goodness and out of that should flow goodness. But what I want to do is start at the earthly father and see if the heavenly father who is good is capable of doing some of these things. So I'd like to ask my fathers to stand. I don't care what age your kids are, if you're a father, if you could please stand at this time. Inside the house, outside, whatever. I'm not going to embarrass you. These are not trick questions. Follow me. And just look around if you're confused. If nobody else is raising their hand, don't raise their hand. I just want to ask you some very simple questions. Us being fathers who fail, would we do some of these things that we blame God for? him being a good, perfect father. Would you ever push your child 
down the steps so that they would have a greater respect for gravity. Raise your hand. (laughs) Would you ever burn your child's hand on the stove so that you can come alongside of him and show him mercy by helping him afterward? If you would do that, raise your hand. Dads are like non-participatory here. (laughs) Would you ever put, because this this should actually start to bother us a little bit, because these are excuses that we use sometimes. Would you ever put just a little bit of poison in your child's dinner so that he has to go to the ER so that when he's at the ER, he'll have an opportunity to minister to the nurse? Because without all of the sick Christians in the hospitals, how are the doctors and nurses going to come to know Jesus? Instead of us being healthy, going into the ER and praying for people. But we've said it before. He's probably given me this because then I had an opportunity to minister. No, maybe he didn't give it to you. Maybe he just won with your situation. Maybe he just used you because you were already there to witness. Okay, so maybe you wouldn't cause these things to happen. Maybe you would just allow them. Would you ever allow your neighbor to beat up your child so they would learn a greater respect for authority? Not one hand. That's good. Would you allow another adult to kidnap your child to teach him a good lesson about safety? You can sit down. These things are completely absurd. Every single one of you would end up in jail if you did one of these. And yet, through our twisted theologies and our twisted excuses of what God's doing or allowing in our life, we blame those things on him. We've actually said these things. He's just teaching me a lesson. I'm telling you, I was there, right? At the same time my car breaks down, if my AC goes down too and a window cracks, I'm thinking, God, what did I do wrong that you did this? I've had those thoughts before, years ago. I must be doing something wrong. Am I praying enough? Am I reading enough? All these things are going around. Like God's this cosmic you know, person like creating all these problems in our life. Instead of going back to the premise that God is good. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 9, it says, You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? No. Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people, that's us, we're the ones that we fail, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you good gifts to those who ask of him? So if the Bible says he gives you good gifts, then all of the bad stuff is not from him. If we are attributing calamity, disease, sickness, accidents to God, we will not be able to represent him to a lost world, right? Hey, my God is great. My God loves you. He created you. Jesus came to the cross to die for you. I want you to accept him and follow him as I am. But don't mess up because he might send a sickness to you. Don't mess up too bad or don't sin too much because you might get in an accident. He might pull the rug out from under you. That's not our theology, is it? But I think at times we make those excuses. I'm not trying to be hard on us. I'm just trying to get out in the open some of the things that run through our head so we can settle the issue that God is good. I will address the Old Testament in the upcoming weeks and how we can see the goodness of God even through what was happening. But today I want to continue to establish a baseline of this. We are in the epic battle of good versus evil, right? So I I did this illustration before. I won't do it again today. 
But it, God represents good. The devil represents evil, but it's not a fair match. Some people think it's God versus the devil, like it's an equal match, but it's not. God is God. The devil is a fallen angel. So if anything is going to be a, uh, a head-to-head match, it would be like Michael the archangel and the devil going head-to-head. But God's like way up here. All right? I want you guys to see that because this is not like the devil has any authority at all messing with God. God's like completely victorious. He's letting us, his children, stamp on and stomp on the devil until Jesus chooses to return. It's not a fair match. So what we have here, all of the things that represent evil are in the devil's corner. Everything that represents good is in God's corner. God sent his son Jesus to destroy the works of the enemy. Now it says here in Hebrews 1, 3, it says, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. What we want is this. We want Jesus to be our target in life because if we are doing the works of Jesus, then we know we're doing the works of the Father because Jesus only did what he saw his Father doing. So I want you to ask yourself, what did Jesus do while he was on the earth? Did he create calamity for people's lives and problems? No, he rebuked people who thought they had it all together but didn't. But everybody who knew that they were nothing without him, he showed grace and kindness to Look at one time in the New Testament, one time in Jesus's life where Jesus gave somebody a sickness to teach them a lesson. If you find it, please email me. Name one time where you see Jesus like raising the boat rental fees because all of the fishermen had sinned too much. Name one time Jesus set a house on fire to just show them, you know what, you just haven't been following me, so I'm done with it. But it says in Hebrews that Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. So the way Jesus lived and the way Jesus acted and the way Jesus taught, that's God in flesh. It's his exact nature walking this earth. It's Jesus as our target. And what did Jesus come to do? He was sent by the Father. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, the Son of God, who was Jesus, came to destroy the works of the devil. He was here for a purpose, to redeem all of lost mankind by destroying the works of the devil. Now, the interesting things, I started all the way back in Psalm about God giving us authority on this earth. And in John 20, right before Jesus ascends, in John 20, 21, it says, as the Father, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So you're starting to see, though God could create and do anything he wants, he sent Jesus with a very specific task to destroy the works of the enemy. And then Jesus gives us authority and sends us to do the same thing. So nothing surrounding God is having us do bad things or receive bad things from the Lord. Now, this is what I think. I think we see the world getting worse and worse, right? We see nations falling apart, and we say, well, God must be really mad at them, and God must be doing this and this and this. And we're blaming bad stuff on God, but it actually removes our responsibility to do good. Because if we say, hey, this world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? It's just going to be destroyed. We actually remove our responsibility as being lights and darkness. This must be God. They're destroyed. Well, how about praying for the evil leader to come to Christ? (laughs) 
I found it quite awkward for a season of my life praying for leaders in ISIS to come to Christ. And if some of the highest officials in ISIS would come to Christ, they would begin to change that organization. I mean, we're, we're, we're willing to, to have somebody put a bullet through their head quickly. But do we take the responsibility as Christians to pray for them? I've done this several times before. I'm going to do it again today. Here's two resumes, all in one verse. Good versus evil, two job descriptions, two resumes in one verse, John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Three aspects on his resume and his job description, stealing, killing, and destroying. Jesus, job description, resume, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Some of your translations say life more abundantly. Is this quite clear? Is it getting clearer? Devil's job description, all the bad stuff. God's job description, all of the good stuff through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. I've said these words and I've heard these words before. When tragedy strikes, problems happen. Well, God knows best. God's ways are higher than ours. This must have all been in God's master plan. It's God's perfect timing. Do you know all of those statements are true? All of those statements in themselves are true. But if we match them up to harmful events, it's actually communicating that the person who came down with pneumonia, somehow their sin 20 years ago caused that to happen now. It's God's perfect timing. Do you see how that can get twisted? All of those statements are true, but we should not attribute them to something that's in the devil's job description. What I want to consider is this. No matter what situation you're going through, what sickness, what illness, what tragedy, what accident, I want you to consider that God didn't give it to you. He didn't want it to happen, but he's been walking with you through the entire thing. And when he's walking with you, and you witness the people that you wouldn't have had a chance to witness to because now you're in the hospital, or you come into contact with somebody at a rehab that you would have never come in contact with, and he begins to win in these little situations, and you bring someone to Christ, you pray with somebody, and you see all these things now happening, that it wasn't God giving it to you, it was God with you, working it out for your good. The entire time, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You would never believe that the mechanic wore off the tread on your tires, but you're thankful when he changes the tire, right? But we, we reverse this. We say, well, if God gave me new tires while this bad thing was happening, he must have given me this bad thing to happen to give me the good. And that's not true. He's just working things out for your good. I think, I think from the beginning of time, the beginning of mankind, we believed a lie. We've just believed a lie. And the quicker we can come out of that lie and repent of it, if you're walking in that, then we'll find freedom. I'm going to go through some verses. If you turn to Genesis chapter 3, all the way back at the beginning, I'm going to start reading Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1. We'll see the lie that was believed and what happened. Starting in verse 1, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat of the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Well, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the middle of the tree, or the, from the tree in the middle of the garden, that we are not allowed to eat. 
God said, you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman, period. Verse four, that's a lie. That's a lie that Eve and Adam and Eve both believe. He says, you won't die. If you flip back to Genesis 2, verse 15, just one, one page back. It says, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over. But the Lord had warned him, you may freely eat from the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And then the serpent comes and says, you're not going to die. What he's doing, he's tempting Eve to doubt the goodness of God. Because if God was a good God, then he's trustworthy. And if he's trustworthy, I can follow him. And if I'm going to follow him, I'm not going to follow the serpent. So he's saying, don't, don't believe in the goodness. Don't believe to trust him. You're not going to die. Now, God obviously wasn't talking about an immediate physical death, but it started the process for sure. So this sin has allowed sickness, disease, tragedy, calamity, aging, all of that stuff. Sin was the doorway for this entering into the world. In verse 5, it says, God, I'm back in Genesis chapter 3. It says, God knows that your eyes will be open, and as soon as you eat it, you will be like God, even though they were already created in God's image. It says, knowing both good and evil. And I want you to watch the result. The woman was convinced. She believed the lie. It says, she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. Not everything that's beautiful and looks delicious should be eaten. It says, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. Why? Why couldn't she just rely on the goodness of God to give her the wisdom? She wanted more than what God wanted her to have. So she ate of it. She gave it to her husband. He ate it. Verse 7, at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame. I want you to see, their obedience to the liar actually made them like the liar. They believed the lie, and they became like him because they were covered with shame. He doesn't walk around proud, like in a good way. He has pride, but constantly riddled with shame. But look at Romans 6.16. It says, don't you realize that you become the slave to whatever you choose to obey? If you have hidden in your theology that God is angry with you, God is out to get you, God's punishing you when you mess up, or God's just causing all these bad things to happen, you're believing a lie from the enemy. and You become a slave to those lies, which means it reframes everything about your theology. Something as simple as God is good most of the time will affect how you pray. It'll affect how you minister. It'll affect how you read the Bible. But John 8, 32 says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Amen. It's just truth. The truth will set you free. What's truth? Jesus. Jesus is saying, as you follow me, as you learn about me, not just in your head, not just to print out another brochure of your theology, as you actually walk in me and follow me and do my works, this truth will set you free. Where you're no longer afraid of God as a punishing God. You fear him because you're just re it's a reverence. It's a worship. So you've created me. You've allowed me to come into your kingdom. You love me even in the midst of my mistakes. That's a truth that will set you free. So what was God's original plan? Before sin ever came into the earth, what was God's original plan? Just follow with me. Genesis 1, 4. And God saw the light. That light was good. 
He created some more, Genesis 1.10, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.12, after creating some more, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.18, after creating some more, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.25, after creating more, and God saw that it was good. After he's created everything, he said he looked all over of what he's made, and he saw that it was very good. Is God in the business of creating bad things? Absolutely not. Before sin entered the world, everything was good. And sin enters, and we mess it up. And thank God, the good God that he is, is he sent his son to redeem us back from what we lost. The original intention is in Genesis 1, verses 28. So it says that he made the livestock and all this stuff. He made humans in the image of God. But then it says he blessed them. So God blesses Adam and Eve, And he says, be fruitful and multiply. This is before sin. Fill the earth and govern it. So humans were created in God's image. God's not forced or controlled. So God doesn't force or control you. Do you know that? He's not forcing you to love him. He's not forcing you to worship him. It's a free will. And he breaks it down quite simply. He says, be fruitful. So they were actually supposed to work the land. But there were no thorns. There were no thistles then. There was no pain in their labor. They were supposed to be productive. I want you to understand, I have to use this illustration. I need need to bring a globe up here one time. Out of the entire globe, I want you to understand that the garden only covered one location. He wasn't asking them to tend the entire world. Satan was cast down to the earth. It was in disarray. I want you to understand this. So Satan's here. He's working. He's trying to manipulate things. So he places the garden, God places the garden, and he gives it to Adam and Eve, And he says here, be fruitful in it. Be productive in it. And the next thing he says is multiply. Don't just have one kid. Don't just have two kids. Like multiply. Have lots of children. How many of you know, if you started in a small house and had lots of children, you want a bigger house? So as they have more children, there's more children to be productive, to be fruitful, and it will grow. The next thing it says to fill the earth. His intention was this. Be productive have kids, they are productive, have kids, they are productive, have kids, and as you continue to choose to follow me, my glory will cover the earth. Where is there anything bad in that? Did you understand that was God's original intention, for his glory to cover the earth? Without sin, with generation after generation after generation of people who just choose to trust in his goodness, they don't doubt it, so they trust him, they follow him, and they don't ever listen to the lie of the serpent. And after his glory is covering the earth, he says, govern it, subdue it, a lot of your translations say. So this is basically taking anything that was untended. So all of those areas that weren't beautiful, like the garden, as they began to subdue and govern it, they would have taken dominion over that land in love, a land that the enemy wanted to destroy. Okay, so we see this. Adam and Eve sidetracked God's plans very, very quickly. At the onset of that sin, now we see sickness, we see murder come very quickly. We see tragedy, depression, torment, impurity. Sin was the doorway through the lie of the enemy that allowed all this stuff to come in. And then we see from that, we see curses, we see murder, perversion, all these other kind of evil that are are, are wreaking havoc across this world. I am not telling you today that if you're sick or if you've had a tragedy, it's because of a sin. 
I'm saying sin entered the world and now we have tragedy and now we have sickness. If you start thinking that I messed up and now I'm sick, then you're not believing that God's a good God. So until sin entered the world, no one would have ever have doubted that God wasn't good. Sin enters the world. Why are we doubting that God's good if he's without sin? Right? God hasn't changed. We changed. No, could you imagine Adam and Eve before sin entered? I'm not, I'm not sure if God's good or not. He's probably going to cause me to trip and fall and, you know. Before sin, we would never have doubted it, but we doubt it now. But it's not God's fault. It's sin. Sin was the doorway. Thank God in Luke, in Luke 19, verse 10, it says, the Son of Man came in complete partnership with the Father to seek and save those who were lost. And that's not just our sin. We were lost in our sin, but we also lost our authority. Do you understand that, guys? When Adam and Eve was given rulership over the earth, and then they sinned, they believed the enemy, they handed the enemy our authority. So Jesus wasn't coming back just to redeem us from our sin, though that is absolutely necessary. It's key to being born again and regenerated. I'm not downplaying that. But he came to, to, to redeem us from our sin, but to also give us the authority back that we handed away to the serpent so that we can walk this earth and actually say, I have the authority in the name of Jesus to walk in love, to walk in forgiveness, to walk in grace, to walk in the gifts of the spirit that he's given me, to walk in the, in the ministry of reconciling people back to God. Do you guys see that? So Jesus died. He lived a perfect life. He died. He was buried. He was resurrected and ascended. All for the restoration of us back to God. And this is the point we miss. If we believe God is causing bad stuff to happen on this earth, then we must admit that we also believe he's working directly against everything Jesus came to give us. If by his stripes you are healed, but somehow he gave you that disease, then Jesus took every beating in vain. If you believe God's punishing you for your sin instead of disciplining you and correcting you, then Jesus' blood dripped in vain. So consider the things that Jesus came to give us freedom from and the authority he came to give us and the forgiveness he came to give us. Those are the same, that's the same business God is in today. I struggled when I first learned about this. God can't be that good, though. Like, I got so, I'm, I am serious. I grew, up, I grew up with the perfection mentality, perfection. So when I messed up, like, I mean, even middle school, high school, right? If I messed up or something didn't go right, man, God was mad at me. You, you might say, like, you're crazy. I don't believe that at all. You, you, you have to let this walk through your daily life, the theology of your daily life to see where am I believing this lie? In any area, it will affect how you live. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus is making it quite clear. This is right before he ascends into heaven to be next to the Father. And he's saying, all authority, Adam, you can come up at this time. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
So he's making a very, very clear statement. God has handed him the baton of authority over all of heaven and all of earth. But then he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, and it goes on. So that therefore go is as you go, as you're going about your daily life, make disciples of all nations. Guess what he did? The father handed Jesus the authority. Jesus took the keys of death and Hades from the devil. He hands us the keys of the kingdom. Do you see all of the baton, all the authority, and all the keys are all in Jesus' hands now? And he hands them to us before he goes to be with the Father. So now we are walking, living. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we're just human. But we're indwelled by the very Spirit of God with the keys of the kingdom, with the baton of authority, knowing we can say, death, where is your sting? It's not there anymore. It's not there. And though it might hurt our soul when our loved ones die, for us personally, death will have no sting. We've been given all of these things to walk and to demonstrate his kingdom on this earth. So how dare me, how dare us as Christians with all that we've been given by the Father to go around and tell other people, God caused this, God allowed this, he opened the door for it. I'm not saying the devil's behind every bush and every bad thing that happens to you. The devil's here and he's pushing buttons. No, sin is in this world, right? Bad things just happen sometimes. People that you can't control make really bad decisions and then they hurt you. Are you guys connecting with this? So I'm not saying like everything's just the devil and he's out like blah, blah. No, we know the devil's job description and we also know that people just have free will. And we also have the free will to believe the truth. So maybe bad has happened to you in life. Maybe you've attributed some of it to God, or maybe you're just wondering, God, where are you? He's there. He's absolutely there. It's really, really hard to ask someone for help when you're blaming them for giving you the problem, though. I believe you may have given this to me because you're mad at me. Will you help me and work everything for good? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense, does it? So if we just say all the bad stuff, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure if somebody made a decision. I'm not sure if it's the devil. I'm not sure if it was my mistake. I don't know. I just know it's not God. And I know God's good. So I know I'm going to look to him for help. And I'm going to go to him for help. And I'm going to cry out for him to change me until my theology is right. And then my lifestyle's right. I'd like you to bow your head at this time. Today, I just want you to know wherever you are with the Lord, that you can rest assured that the truth of God's word is that he is a good God, that he wants to forgive your sins. And all it takes is to believe in Jesus, to believe that he came and he died for the forgiveness of those sins, that all of his suffering, his beatings, all of those things were to bring you freedom from sickness and torment. I just want you to ask yourself today, have I ever received Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Have I ever looked to God and said, I need a Savior? I believe receiving Jesus is as easy as one, two, three. One, that you admit that you've sinned against God and that you need a Savior. 
two, that you believe Jesus is the Son of God, and that he died on the cross for your salvation, and three, that you confess with your mouth that you want Jesus to become your Lord and your Savior. And that word Lord means that you are giving him leadership in your life. He's now in charge. And that word Savior means that he's saving you from an eternity in hell. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to check us out on the web at centralconnect.org.